Welcome to Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins. I'm here on a glorious Thursday morning with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And with Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And today we're joined by very special guest, Stuart Lee. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks for having me. I hesitate to describe you simply as a comedian, since your work is a kind of radical meta-comedy that I, for one, have worshipped for many years. Thank you. You're also renowned as a a connoisseur of obscure and unorthodox music, and you are about to release a wonderful film called King Rocker about unsung hero Robert Lloyd. So we'll be talking about that in just a minute. We'll also be discussing a 1991 audio interview with the great Robert Wyatt, as well as everything else that's new on RBP this week. First off, Stuart, what was your initial gateway into music? Well, you know, I'm the sort of person, I grew up in a house where there were Jeff Love soundtrack albums, and my mum went to the dentist once for a lengthy operation, and the dentist played Hot August Night by Neil Diamond during the, well, she was on gas, I think, and she came out a massive Neil Diamond fan, which actually... The fact that that playing in your house all the time as a kid isn't bad, really. There's some pretty good people on some of those old Neil Diamond albums. And my dad liked sort of country and western and things like that. And there was one Beatles album, A Hard Day's Night, that was they'd been bought in the 60s, and that used to get played all the time. So just that it was just that, really. But then starting to listen to John Peel, I suppose, starting to listen to John Peel at night at about the age of 11 or 12 and thinking... <laughs> It's a familiar tale. It's a familiar tale, Stuart. Yeah, Yeah. of a fifty-two-year-old man today. Yeah, (laughs) my dad's my dad's girlfriend. The first sort of adult record I ever got was about eleven, and my dad's girlfriend got me the second Madness album, which was also a really good gateway into lots of things. If you were the sort of kid that followed things up, you know, you started finding out about Scar and Ian Jury and things like that. So you know, but yeah, and then Peel really Peel, and I suppose hearing the fall on John Peel. You couldn't really not hear the fall on John. Yeah, but hating it, absolutely hating it and thinking it was what? And then just being worn down by it over the months. And then that being, I mean, I ended up seeing them 52 times. So that was, you know. It's it's a funny process that it's not uncommon that something you absolutely despise at first becomes an enduring passion. Yeah. I mean, I was like, about. Jimi Hendrix, Purple Haze. I despised it when I first heard it. That's like 10 years old. I thought it was just a revolting noise. And then six months later, light bulb went off. Yeah. Well, it means if it, if it gets that strong a reaction in you, it means it's doing something. You know, I, <laughs> funny, if I come across that a lot when I arrogantly Google my own name on Twitter or something, people saying that they absolutely hated me for years. And then um, <laughs> just their partner or whatever kept watching me in the end. They went, oh... <laughs> who's got that amount? Who's got that much time now? You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, when you sent me some time ago a list of things I like, I think was the title of it, and there's this sort of guilty pleasures section, or maybe not even pleasures at the end, like things I like when I was young. And you said like the fall, and you said madness, and and then he said big country with an exclamation mark. <laughs> so extra guilty, really. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I, I was talking to someone about that last last night. I, why would I have been talking about big country last night? I've got no idea. Like, who have I even ever who have I seen? I haven't seen anyone. But yeah, how? I get well again. They did one really good peel session. That's the thing. One really good peel session, and then then it started to get a bit sort of chest beating stadium rock. But yeah, seeing them at sort of twelve or thirteen, where they had uh, this backdrop of all these the fields of fire were on fire behind them. Great. Uh, so I still listen to that first big country album. 
But there's loads of good stuff from then. I'll tell you what's brilliant from then is the chameleons. Do you remember them? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's I, just I think we've had a chameleons piece this week. Or, or, or Yeah, we have actually got a new piece about the chameleons, haven't we, Mark? We have, yes. It's very good time. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of passed me by, so I can't. I can't really comment on the comedians, but they were an, a what an eighties favorite. Yeah, of yours. the big yeah. music sort of thing. But that Scripture the Bridge album, weirdly, it was my I loved that as a kid, and it turned out it's one of my wife's favorite records as well. So it's good to have one thing in common, I think. Uh, <laughs> still, but, yeah. You presumably heard the Nightingales on. I mean, I don't suppose you heard the Prefect. You would have been no. slightly too young to yeah, hear yeah, yeah. Rob Lloyd's band, yeah. the Prefect, but. I guess you would have heard the Nightingales on John Peel or yeah, something like absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't escape them. And in fact, as a kid, you'd assume, and they've they've laughed about this themselves, that they were absolutely massive because I think they did they did so many John Peel sessions. They seemed to be present on the show all the time. You know, he got them on a documentary on Arena on BBC Two, and yet there didn't seem to be any way of selling them to the public of converting all that acclaim into sales, really. Well, into more than a cult following, a cult following which has led to the making of a really terrific film, absolutely delightful film. I'm really glad to hear you say that because it's in a vacuum now. You know, it was, we were supposed to be touring it around and whatever. Yeah. Well, so directed by Michael Cumming and produced by by James Nichols, but as it were, kind of co-presented and co-starring Stuart Lee. King Rocker is a fabulous film about a wonderful man. It's just so, it's a joy. It's an absolute joy. I mean, I watched it when you sent me the link some time ago. It's not fresh in my mind, but I did absolutely love it. And I did, as it happens, I interviewed the Nightingales. I went to Birmingham in 1985 to interview Robert in the house that appears in you go to visit his old house, which is yeah. opposite the pub. Opposite the pub, yeah. And liked him tremendously. And at that point, the Nightingales were just so different to everything else that was happening. I mean, obviously, there was a kinship with groups like The Fool. But, but like, mid-'80s pop really was the antithesis of the Nightingales and, I guess, Marky Smith in some ways as well, and all those bands. Did you get in – I mean, do you – I think you read The Enemy. At some point, you obviously must have started reading The Wire because yeah. your tastes accord with a lot of the artists they cover. I mean, what's your memory of that time, Stuart? You know, in a sense, that kind of opposition between sort of top of the popsy, synthy haircut music and this real sort of undertow of John Peel indie indie bands, particularly from outside London. Well, I mean, I was someone... I spent my early teens thinking, oh, I wish I'd been a bit older and I could have seen the clash or you know the, all the punk bands i'd read about and listened to or the two-tone tour or whatever but then it was pretty good being 18 in 1986 because we had what's now remembered sometimes in a quite pejorative sort of way as c86 that sort of the enemy put out a tape free tape with the enemy of all these what people called shambling bands yes that had that sort of aesthetic a lot of them and suddenly they were everywhere and there were fanzines about them and and three of them will be on four times a week in the, your local pub. So I was really deep, deep into all that. And the Nightingales were very much seen as sort of forefathers of that scene, I think. Although, again, they weren't able to capitalise on that <laughs> in any way. No, in any there was no capitalising on shambling, Stuart. I don't no, think I any, anyone's been able to do that. But, I mean, that was a great, that was a great thing to be part of. And, yeah, it did feel like it was its own thing and it was different. And also, weirdly, it tied in with the, with the 
start of alternative comedy, I think, that period, where you felt like the early alternative comedians were like a punk indie thing that was separate in some way. And certainly not living in London and not being able to go to the comedy store, the only places you saw those sorts of people were opening for bands. You know, I saw Phil Jupitus when he was called Porky the Poet opening for <laughs> Billy Bragg and the Sid Presley experience. Yes. Um, I saw Peter Richardson from the comic strip opening for Dexy's Midnight Runners <laughs> in between the Celtic and the Italian phase. <laughs> and I saw, um, I saw the Ted Chippington opening for The Fall in 1984, which was a real, you know, light, light bulb moment in my life. And so that to me, it all seemed part of a, part of a thing uh, together. And I saw, I saw John Hegley and Malcolm Hardy and people like that at the Elephant Fair, which is sort of hippie countercultural crusty festival in Cornwall so you know it all seemed to be it all seemed to be mixed up and now I think if I were if the 16 year old me now looking at stand up now I, I would think it was part of Top of the Pops well it isn't Top of the Pops now but I think it was part of that world rather than part of this other other countercultural sort of world you don't really get comedians opening at gigs anymore really I don't recall ever having no it doesn't work it's awful <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. You've tried it. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I I saw Peter Richardson doing this act of a Mexican bandit opening for Dexys, and I thought it was absolutely hilarious. But it was really only me. And then I and then only I you were met, laughing. Yeah, I met him years later, and he, he said that he only did it that one night because it went down so badly. He never did it again. And I remember it being really good. And actually, the Ted Chippington gig that I was at when he opened for the Fall. I mean, half the people there were trying to boo him off, and I thought it was one of the best things I'd ever seen. And then, it, and then that that got put out as a single, which I've got. I can see it behind <laughs> the other shoulder, yeah. over the other shoulder. There it is. Yeah, we yeah. identified that because that was on. That's was the that's yeah. the actual night that I saw him. Oh, and, that, and it came out as a it came out as a record on Rob Lloyd's label, and so I'm in there laughing alone, <laughs> cheering or cheering, cheering. Oh, just really. I, it was so great because it had the sort of attitude that the Fall of the Nightingales have, you know, to take it or leave it sort of attitude. And I thought, oh, you don't have to be like Ben Elton running around or being like a end of the pier act, getting everyone to join in and have fun. You could just be this odd, awkward presence who's not even lit on the front of his own record. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, yeah it's great. Talking about like booing off and jeering and all that stuff. So the three pieces about Robert essentially were running on the home page, includes the interview that I did with him for Spin, a Neil Taylor piece the following year, and then this piece that John Savage wrote about seeing the prefect on the thirtieth of March nineteen seventy eight at the Victoria Hall in Hanley. And it just makes clear what a brave fellow Robert was, you know, because he, he was being, the, the other bands on the act were the Slits and the Buzzcocks. I think he had quite, a, already at that point, a friendship with the Buzzcocks. But the prefects were bottom of the bill and they were booed off and he he just soaked it up. He well, just he, he, didn't he, care. Yeah, I, he, I don't know if it's in the film, but he told me that he wrote Going Through the Motions with, with, the, with the prefects, which is the slowest song that they've got, a really long dirge, because sort of Sham 69 fans wanted punk to be fast, so he wrote the, the slowest, most annoying thing that he could to create attention at those gigs.
Recently, one of my kids' exam papers got lost, and I was able to say to the teacher something Rob had said to me about the punk movement. Uh, I said, well, you fast-tracked him into disillusionment and saved him from wasting 20 years believing in things. <laughs> and Rob said that about the Clash tour. He said yes. that on the Clash tour, he started off being really excited to be invited on the White Riot tour, and then within days had felt it was just another branch of sort of marketing. I think the incident, which we've animated for the film, hinges on they ran out of clothes and Bernie Rhodes gave them loads of Clash T-shirts, which they wore inside out because they thought it would be really naff to have the headline band's T-shirt on, and they were told by the Clash that they had to wear the T-shirts the right way round. And so um, he, said, he said that's when he gave up on this idea that punk was going to be a, a, everyone in it together. And he was fast-tracked into disillusion. I think he's, he enjoys being contrary and he's, made, um, he's managed to make a life out of it. There's a missing sort of 10 years, which was difficult to fill in. And I think hopefully what people will take away from the film, certainly that's the way me and Michael and James started to feel about it, was that whether they like the Nightingales or not, it's a sort of portrait of this man who has sort of managed to absolutely do what he wanted on a shoestring budget. And he's still free now, even after a stroke, and he's still playing with, with the group on his on his own terms. And I think I'm hoping that people can see it, as I think people need cheering up. And I think it is weirdly happy film. Yeah. Oh, it's a very happy film, and he's such a delightful, self-effacing. You know, there's there's something about there's something about Brummies that I I find so endearingly self-effacing and and that dry humor so dry that i think outsiders sometimes miss it actually yeah i mean i think that's if sorry to but i think that self-effacing thing is important i think it's also why the manchester punk scenes and the liverpool punk scenes and the post-punk scenes in those towns had a regional identity because they they all had a paul morley or a tony wilson to lobby on their behalf and there's a, a, a funny arrogance about the idiom of those of those towns that re, but the Birmingham punk scene, which had loads of amazing things in it, it never really and the post punk scene it never really seemed to have an identity because it's not in the nature of people from there to announce themselves in any way. Uh, the accent helps with that. It's people have <laughs> it's not it's not a voice that people associate with pride or confidence, rightly or wrongly. So it never quite coalesced in that way, and he is very much a product of that. Yeah. When I looked back at the piece, the interview that I did with him, there was there was a line in it that could almost have come from from your film. <laughs> he sort of says, because he's being hailed at the age of twenty five as the sort of grandfather already of this yeah. sort of shambling indie pop sound, you know. And he says, I get quite insulted when writers in these anti pop fanzines come to me and say, you know, the fact that you're really ugly and you can't sing, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Although I think he has a certain amount of pride in the fact that the cover, the sounds that had him on the cover in a cardigan in the kitchen of that house that you visited him at was the worst selling issue of sounds that I ever played. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really look. It's just a bloke having some toast or something. Yeah, he didn't jump off the shelves, as yeah, it were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so, I mean, so how, how did the film come together? What, what was the sort of germ of it? Well, Rob you know, is a sort of a grifter, you know, he's, he has to pull lots of strings to keep in the game. And when the Nightingales, well, the prefects got back together, first of all, I think in about 2002 or something, then they decided to become the Nightingales, which is what happened the first time around. And he asked, he heard that I was a fan and asked me if I would 
support them at a London gig because Ted Chippington used to support them first time around, and I liked Ted Chippington as well. And against my better judgment, I did it because, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't work in the way it used to, comedians only for bands. But that's when I met him. I always see them when I'm touring around. And about five, five, maybe even ten years ago, he said, what do you think about making a film about the Nightingales, a bit like the Anvil film, about how we're the unluckiest, you know, worst band in the world? And I went, well, you could do that, but you're not the worst band in the world. And in many ways, you are lucky because you're still, you're still doing it. And I thought there was probably, I thought there was something in there. I remember talking to people at BBC and at BBC Radio about it, and you know, you get you always get knocked back with these things. You, you know, you, you wouldn't believe it really. People just assume you can do anything if you're a minor celebrity, but nobody ever really wants to do the sort of things that I want to do. And then, by a weird coincidence, I, I knew Michael Cumming. He directed the pilot of Comedy Vehicle and a live video I did, and we just got talking. And it turned out he was a, a big Nightingales fan. And uh, I said, um, well, do you want to try and make a film about them? And he went, all right. And um, <laughs> so we crowdfunded it. And James from Fire Records maxed out his credit card. I'd met him helping out on a Shirley Collins film, which is another idea. I'd sort of pitched to BBC years ago, and then someone else which got turned down, and then someone else uh, did it and did it very well, much better than I would have done. And it, so everyone worked on it for free, apart from that we had to pay the crew. Michael edited it in his shed. And the animator did all the animations for free. And then it was finished. And we were going to tour it around cinemas and do talks and stuff. And obviously the virus, you know, has knocked that on the head. It's going to be on in the Sheffield Documentary Festival at the end of October in some capacity. If you can go and see it, you'll be able to. But if you can't, it'll be online. Is that Doc and Roll? Is that the yeah, Doc and Roll, roll yeah. yeah. And also a television platform, which is free to air, that I'm not allowed to name yet, but it isn't the BBC, is showing it in November, which is just great. It means that anyone will be able to see it. Oh, good. Which is what you want, really, with something like that. You know, I would, I felt it was in the tradition of the sorts of things you used to stumble across on, on the BBC in the 70s and 80s, you know, when there'd be strange episodes of Arena or, you know, monitor documentaries. So I'm really glad it's it's out there. But it's just, it just came together. The story just came together really well. Rob's obviously a really good raconteur. And then other things suggested themselves. It was really funny how his memories of events were often quite different to other people's memories of the same stories. So pretty early on, we established this technique whereby we'd interview him about something and then ask the actual people involved for their memories of it. And they usually contradicted him. And so and that which brought all <laughs> sorts of weird celebrities into it. Frank Skinner's in it. And John um, Taylor of Duran Duran. John Taylor of Duran Duran. Yeah. Robin Asquith. That <laughs> chef, Asquith. Nigel, um, yeah. you know, in, from The Guardian. And, yeah, so it, which sort of gave it this – started to become a sort of critique of the rockumentary where it suggested that you couldn't really trust the stories of these people anyway, which are quite <laughs> – which sort of seemed to be more to do with my aesthetic as well, I suppose, which was good. Of, and like, then there's the role, of course, of, of the wonderful, the King Kong, the statue, yeah. which was such a, I think, a brilliant idea because there's oh, that well, sort of thanks. almost yeah. like this equation between between yeah. Robert and the statue and you well, finally then, find the statue. Yeah, there's a statue of King Kong in Birmingham that, I mean, it was only there for six months, but it seemed like it absolutely dominated my childhood. I remember being really obsessed with it and I never knew what had happened to it and, 
you know, before the internet, you couldn't just find out, could you? So it was, it was sort of off the radar for years, and it, it, I started to think of it. I had this sort of plan of trying to use looking for the statue as being like the story of Rob's life, where it was this thing that was quite a big deal in a way in the Birmingham scene, and then went, and no one knew where it went, and but would it come back? And as it turned out, the statue had been sort of discovered by the Henry Moore Institute and critically rehabilitated and put on display, and then it's now in the in the Lake District. But I floated this idea to Michael, the director, and we went to see the Nightingales at Lexington in King's Cross one night as we were trying to think about doing the film. And Rob started doing all this sort of stuff on stage like that. And, I, and he was really plastered afterwards. But I said to him, what were you doing all that for? And he went, oh, I was thinking of that statue of King Kong that used to be in Birmingham. And I went, what? I said, are you, are you trying to, do you know that I was thinking about this? And he That's went, no. Bizarre. I know, but he might have known. That's the thing he about him. <laughs> he might have known anyway somehow and decided to do it to like play a mind game with me. Mm. So I still don't know. But then I've noticed him doing it quite a lot now. <laughs> like things. Well, it works really well. I just, it, I think it kind of, it's, it's quite an important element in, in the film, isn't it? Something to hang the whole story on in a way. It's a symbol of something. Anyway, look, it is a fantastic film. So anyone who's listening, if you get a chance to see it, Either on, a, on an on as yet unnamed television, yes, an as yet unnamed unit. television yeah. platform. It's not, yeah. it's not the BBC, but you can see it free. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not allowed to say no that idea. It is, I don't I know no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Search me, John. I'm just going to kind of. Just scoot through other things that are free on the homepage, and then we'll talk a little bit about Robert White. Funnily enough, some I think also in the interview I did with Rob, he said something about punk. He said, I never even thought about British music until punk. The only British things that I ever listened to, the ever English music I listened to, were Robert White and Henry Cow. Yeah, funny enough, so we tried to figure. Yeah, we tried to get Robert White in the film because as a child, Rob sent him a painting that he did. He was about 12. <laughs> he sent Robert Wyatt a painting, and Robert Wyatt sent him a letter thanking him for it, right? And then when, they got the, when the prefects got their first recording session with Rough Trade, Jeff Travis said, oh, Robert Wyatt's in the next studio. Do you want to meet him? And Rob went in. He said, oh, hello, I, I sent you a painting when I was a kid. And Robert Wyatt said to him, oh, Robert Lloyd from Birmingham, right? And then they were friends for ages, apparently. But as you probably know, Robert Wyatt's, you know, he's not been in the best of health so we could we didn't manage to get that story into it and i don't know if he's still got rob's painting but yeah he was someone who talked about oh, it's a sweet story i think look we may as well do you know what let's talk about robert wyatt it would seem daft now to to <laughs> not go, go into the, the the wyatt world mark tell us about the new audio interview yeah this is andy gill interviewing robert in august 91 on the, the release of Dondestan. I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, the last half hour is pretty much entirely about then-current politics, and it sort of depends on how interested you are in then-current politics, whether you've got to be interested in that. But the first 45 minutes are, are really great. He talks about why he moved to Laos, uh, wheelchair life. He's, quite, he's just interesting about just the limitations of being a paraplegic. talks about a new album, about how it's new material rather than cover versions. Robert has a 
quite a long history of doing a lot of cover versions in his work. And this is mostly his own stuff. And his partner, Alfreda's, Alfie's poems, and he talks about that process of actually writing music to a poem, which is a, a very, very different process from most songwriting. And he's very interesting about that. Can I just interject that, look, mm-hmm. one of the reasons we picked this audio for this week is precisely because Faber are this week publishing some collected lyrics. I don't know if you probably know about this, Stuart. Collected lyrics of Robert Wyatt and Alfie Benger. Uh, Beng? Benger? I'm not even sure how you pronounce her name. In their sort of series of uh, books of lyrics. It's a really nicely done piece of work right. with, with sketches and, yeah. and cartoons and... Yeah, so it's called Side by Side. Yeah, he's, he's, he's very nice. He, he obviously loves her writing. He wouldn't have used it. He's, I think, so, I think my doorbell's just gone. <laughs> can, you, can you hold on a second? <laughs> the man from Porlock. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so and he was never seen again. <laughs> I met Robert White in the street once, and I, do, I don't tend to bother people if I see them because I... I find it really awkward when people talk to me. I try to be polite, but I, but I just wanted to tell him, you know, how much some of the songs have meant to me, and I thought I'd really feel bad if I didn't. And he was very good about it, and actually knew he knew I was. He knew loads about comedy, and he knew all the lefty mm. ones, as, as you'd expect. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah, he sent me he sent me a a clip, an email recently of a clip of loads of Japanese school children playing a, a massive jazz drum solo. So uh, he obviously thought. Oh, that's something you'd like. I yeah. bothered you. I bothered you, Stuart, at a gig. Oh, right. <laughs> I did. Right. I couldn't stop myself because I'd just been watching lots of comedy vehicle stuff on telly. And it was at the Barbican. It was the Big Star Third oh, sort yeah. of jamboree. Yeah. And I saw you. I was waiting for a mate to come out of the gents and you were standing there. And I, I couldn't stop myself going up to you and just sort of kind of blathering like like a oh, sort was, of was adolescent right? fanboy. So I think you were I very right? you were very good. You were oh, very good, good about it. Because <laughs> oh, a lot of times people don't know they, they sort of recognise you and they think you're someone else and it gets really awkward. And they'd say, Oh why when's the word coming back or you know, whatever. They wouldn't say that now, but yeah, so. I was gonna say you've got a sort of rather Robert Wyattish beard that you're cultivating. <laughs> <Lockdown> Wyatt beard. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, where were we? Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's charming about her poetry. He also talks about his singing voice. Let's listen to a clip. Singing a song by a friend of ours called or Brian Hopper, Hugh Hopper's older brother. He's now a scientist, but was then a musician and as a, as a boy. And he was sort of writing in a vaguely, very Chuck Berry influenced thing. And I was singing this song, and it's me, and it just sounds like a really daft Steve Marriott reject, you know. <laughs> oh, baby! <laughs> yeah, yeah! <laughs> it just. Uh, I couldn't really do it. I could not. The mustard was not cut by me in this uh, in this field. Yeah. So I just had, it was really retreating into all I had left that, that couldn't. You know, did wasn't ringing a false note almost literally. Yeah. Is it worth it? A new winter coat and shoes for the wife. Which is you know it's fantastic. You know. 
the evolution of an English singing voice for him. He talks about how plain his voice, how close it is to his speaking voice, which is interesting. He goes on, he really likes hip-hop. We'll play a clip at the end of the show when he talks about listening to Pete Tong's hip-hop hour on Radio 1. This is his favourite radio. <laughs> Peter Tong, he calls him, doesn't Peter he? Tong. Peter Tong. <laughs> repeatedly calls him Peter Tong, which is so <laughs> sweet. The voice, I mean, should we just briefly talk about what makes Robert Wyatt so unique? I mean, you really can't compare him to anyone. And that voice is, it's sort of so, it's kind of almost enchanting, isn't it? There's such a sweetness to it. I mean, I love to um, the first serious, important rock show I ever saw, Age of 13, was a free concert in the park with Soft Machine headlining. Right. And he's doing his solo, and some bloke's talking in his ear, and he flings his sticks down and says, for fuck's sake, I'm trying to play my fucking solo, and some bloke's trying to get me to pass on a fucking message. And I'm 13, prep school, you're just out of prep school, and he's someone swearing on the stage. I was absolutely transfixed by this. <laughs> my brother bought their albums. I love the Soft Machine 3. There's some beautiful singing of his on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, there's something so affecting about him. He's got this ability to sort of just extract the essence of a lyric and just give them to you. I mean, his version of shipbuilding, yeah. which I far prefer to Elvis Costello's, for example, yeah. is transfixing. I, th- I think he's great. I think he's absolutely fabulous. Yeah, I mean, Stuart, I think you mentioned in one email, Moon in June, I think oh, yeah. you mentioned to, yeah. well, to the, me. Particularly, uh, my, my first experience with work was, I think, again, Peel playing shipbuilding, but then... Again, I can't believe how clearly I can remember this. Mark Ellen sat in for John Peel at some point in the in the eighties and decided to play loads of old radio sessions from the Top Gear days. And one of the ones he played was a Soft Machine session. And I'd always thought, as a young man, they were this sort of jazz rock band that wasn't going to be the sort of thing I'd like at all. But there's a thirteen minute John Peel session version of Moon in June that is yeah. much better than the one on the album. Where and it was what what you were saying about and I, I listened to it over and over again. I, my daughter was learning the drums, and I made her watch it, a film of it, because it's it's so great. And the, and the way that it's basically a, it, he's written a very conversational description of a day spent hanging around what I assume is made of Ale Studios. Yes, and the drum patterns that follow the rhythms of speech. You know, are like messy and transcribing birds or something. He's talked about how the coffee machine works and who else is coming in, and it's just. It's it's just such an amazing piece of music. What's so um, funny is that actually in the lyrics book, they they don't put in the original lyrics. They put in the BBC version of Moon and June. They just oh, transcribe right. what he right. what he kind of almost ad libbed. It's very yeah, yeah. very witty. Not forgetting the extra facilities, such as the tea machine, just along the corridor. That's really interesting hearing that. I mean, the other thing, you know, obviously he got very drunk at the party, fell from a window, broke his back and became a paraplegic. And for a drummer to become paraplegic is a, a total transformation in a way that, let's say, it wouldn't be for a guitar player, for example. And I wonder how much what he's done subsequently has stemmed from, A, that experience, and B, the experience of being wheelchair-bound. And that it... The, the, your, one's view of the world has to be different in some sort of way, whether that's had an impact on his aesthetic. Well, the original, the, the Rock Bottom album, which was my yeah. entry into Wyatt World, it, it, is, is to some degree about 
that experience. Yeah, very, all, very directly about it, actually. And such a, I mean, still one of my favourite records of all yeah. time. I think it's really, really magnificent. And, and again, completely unique and distinctive sounding record. Of course, produced by Nick Mason, because he was pals yeah. with the Pink Floyd, but the Mike Oldfield's playing this incredible guitar on it, and the Soft Machine guys. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, so it's a terrific record. Of course, the other thing is that he became a communist. He actually joined the Communist yeah. Party at a time when everyone else was leaving, basically, you know. This is got a marvellous contrariness in that. We can listen to this clip. He, he eventually kind of is not exactly thrown up. He leaves the Communist Party, and this is, this is him talking about that. It's very good. Well, in the CP's case, and uh, there was a funny double act going on where the, the front was, look, we're frightfully reasonable ones, not like those horrible foreign ones. We're really nice, just like you really look. You know, we know all about wines and everything. And, uh, but behind that, behind that, there was this really sort of fairly ruthless campaign to root out all the, the embarrassing remnants, which basically, in their minds, was getting rid of the, the tanky legacy for, a, for a, a wonderful new new age kind of politics, but in, in practice, meant a sadistic roundup of the people I had really come to like, which is sort of old anti-fascists from the Second World War, uh, with their Paul Robeson records, uh, having jumble sales, and I just liked them very much. Mm. These old, these people that we were all being told, you know. Said, would we have to cut off nothing? Well, you know, I'll sink in their ship. I don't want to float in yeah. yours. So, as far as I'm concerned, when they got rid of these people, they effectively got rid of me. Um, but for those who don't, listeners who don't know, tankies is a term used within the Communist Party to denote those who approved of the Soviet invasion, first of all, of Hungary and then subsequently Czechoslovakia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the tanky element was meant to be that, but it's, it, it's, it just became a term of general abuse for kind of old school Stalinists. What I like about why is that, you know, all these, you know, in some ways, politically pretty hard line in terms of his politics. You know, he's, he's not that, he's never dour or humorless about no. it. There's always a, a charming kind of humor in there. But uh, Barney, you interviewed him. In fact, like, we've got that on the site as well, the audio yeah, of that. I, I did go to Lauf and so it was interesting to hear this. This was probably seven or eight years bef- before that I went up there. Yeah. And so it, I think it's quite fresh at that point. They've just moved there. They talk about getting out of Twickenham because there's, Robert says, there's one too many flashy cars in our street and we've started <laughs> to feel like aliens, spoken yeah. like a good communist. Um, but yes, um, I did. Yeah, he's, yeah, he was, yeah, he was, I, I loved the, him. I just absolutely adored the man. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, that really comes through in the interview you did. I mean, he's, he keeps offering cups of tea and things like that. You know, there's something, there's something very kind of naturally generous They were such a lovely couple. Him. I mean, it was so, yeah. it's so nice to see people. They've been together for so many years and still together. And what a, just a great partnership creatively yeah. as well as matrimonially. Stuart, have you kind of have you sort of kept pace with, with, with Robert's 
sort of um, story well, it, and trajectory. It, yeah, it, intermittently. And, and in fact, I actually listened to Rock Bottom for the first time about 18 months ago. And, and, I, and it, was, it was a bit like watching Citizen Kane in my 40s, which I like, when you, you're told these things are classic and you go, yeah, I'll get round to it. And I had absolutely no idea that, that, that was what an amazing record that was. And, and the Live at Drury Lane album from around the same time is really great as well. So no, I, I hadn't, I hadn't, um, I, I sort of, I sort of joined him when Peter was playing shipbuilding that sort of time. And then, and then had Soft Machine as well. I didn't really know about the middle. And I think I did that thing that people of my age tend to do until we get older, where you, you assume, you assume everything between about 1970 and 76 was just terrible. And then you and then you, you look you look into it and you find out it starts to become this gold mine of things that you never really never really knew about. I mean, I just thought it was all like Deep Purple and uh, people in flares and Queen, which I hate and stuff like that. So, but then you find all this other stuff. But yeah, they were my golden years in many yeah. ways. I mean, <laughs> seventy-one to no, seventy-six, probably that to me is the yeah. most fertile period of. of uh, of rock music, yeah. I it's think. interesting. Um, so, so the moment I mean, Robert Watt was virtually forced, effectively forced out of Soft Machine. It, was a, it wasn't a pleasant sort of divorce at all. And the moment he left, they became the least interesting band in the world. Just about. I mean, overnight they sort of became just so tedious. It's not true, but you know, th- there we go. Yeah. But I, I love bits of their first three albums. I mean, they're never terribly consistent as a band, but when they were good, they were really fabulous. Yeah, yeah. We should just briefly mention the featured writer of the week, who is none other than Kathleen Moran. I have it on good authority that it is Kathleen and not Caitlin. And we're featuring her because, you know, she needs all the help that she can get, poor struggling, <laughs> struggling writer that she is. Um, so uh, so this is this is like, you know, hey, Catelyn, we're, we're with you all the way. She has a new book out. Called, I think it's called, is it called um, More Than a Woman? More Than a Woman. Wasn't that a song on Saturday Night Fever or something like that? Anyway, new novel or, or book out, Feminist Manifesto. So we're just featuring three pieces that she's written, and they're great. I mean, there's this fantastic interview with Courtney Love from 94, yeah. Maker, And I'll just, she, she said, I mean, Courtney is in just full-on Courtney mode. I want this printed, she tells Catelyn. This has never been set down in ink before. I lost my virginity in a council house in Liverpool listening to Isolation by Joy Division to a guy called Michael Mooney who hung around with Teardrop Explodes. <laughs> it gets a little more graphic after that. I'm not going to read that out. But it's, but it, it is, it's great. I yeah. mean, and then there's, a, there's a, an interview with Kylie Minogue and there's a, a look back at the Spice Girls. It's great. Now, also free on RBP, in our now sort of, I suppose, depressingly regular Don't Fear the Reaper section where we say goodbye, we are saying goodbye this week to, this may be someone, Stuart, you're familiar with from reading The Wire, a member of Silver Apples, yeah. Simeon Cox. So we'll maybe briefly talk about Silver Apples. Are you a fan? Oh, yeah, I, saw, got, I saw them. Yeah, I figured you would. Yeah, you yeah. saw and, them and play. I, I, okay. I saw a brilliant thing they did, actually, which is that they, they made, Simeon made one album with a group called The Alchemists, who were a, a sort of psychedelic Stooges kind of type band from Dorset. And um, and uh, uh, the uh, guitarist, Paul Simmons, I know now, and he's in all sorts of things. He's in the Bevis Frond, he's in the lineup of the Cravats that's currently going. He's played with Jello Biafra. All, he's kind of a, a hired gun in those sort of things. But they made this, they, he recorded an album in a day with The Alchemists. 
where he's doing his electronic bleeps and improvising words over the top of these sort of pulverizing Stooges, Hawkwind kind of riffs. And I saw them do that live at Yulu in 1998. And I didn't know who he was. I knew, I knew the Alchemist, weirdly, but I, didn't, I went to see them. I didn't know who Simeon was. And I thought, it's just like really old, weird guy on stage with them. <laughs> He's probably like, born in 1938. I know, yes. Yeah. I, mean, I talked to him afterwards, and I didn't know who he was, right, which was, which was pretty good. You know, I went, are you right? What, what are you doing with that? <laughs> I don't even know how it happened, really, but it was a great, great thing to see. And I absolutely love that album. And I used bits of it, actually, on a show I directed for BBC oh, Four yeah. uh, called Attention Scum about 20 years ago. I used bits of Simeon and the Alchemist as, as uh, backing music on it. But, yeah, great. Really interesting stuff. Chris Needs, one of our contributors, has just come in the process of completing a biography of him. And luckily, he got to read it and approve it before before he died, which is was great. But they were a pioneering band. You could almost say without them, you probably wouldn't have had suicide the way suicide were. And as Barney and Jasper know, I'm very involved in this free improvisation music scene in South East London. And there are a lot of people with a table of electronics who are straight out of what he was doing, you know, homemade oscillators and all this kind of stuff, you know, and plugging things through. We've got some really good pieces on the the site about not many, but the pieces we've got on the Silver Apple is really good because he's he's he does great interview. You know, he really is. He's really articulate, very funny about stuff. Actually, doesn't take himself too seriously. I mean, he's not pompous at all. Mm. Wasn't pompous at all, and it's 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 very sad. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't first. I knew the Silver Apples. I think I went to interview Alan Vega about um, suicide, obviously, and he mentioned Silver Apples mm-hmm. as an obvious kind of prototype or influence on, on suicide. I mean, two guys, electronic. Yeah. I mean, they really, really were electronic pioneers, weren't they? Yes, yeah, very much so. Very different from Silver Apples. Cool and the gang. We are saying goodbye to Ronald Carlis Bell, who was really the main dude, the leader of Cool and, and the gang. He wrote just Jungle Boogie. He wrote Jungle Boogie. Very sad. It's just, just, just came in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Jungle Boogie is just such a great tune. Oh, you know? I mean, I'm a huge Cool and the Gang yeah, fan. Yeah, me too. I absolutely love their stuff. It's just so vital. I mean, Cool and the, cool the Gang, in a way, is, is it's a sort of story of two bands, in a way, isn't it? A story of two groups. They were one of the great funk groups that came out of James Brown and, and Sly and the Family Stone. But then they sort of reinvented themselves, didn't they? As a yeah. kind of more sort of pop, well, more of a kind of pop disco sort of group. Yeah, I mean, I mean, actually, if you listen to the stuff consecutively, you know, chronologically, it's not like it's a big jump. Okay, it, yeah. it's, it, it's sort of, the, it's buffed up a bit in the studio and in, in production terms. I mean, they started off very much as a sort of, the jazzy end of stuff. I mean, the horn yeah. section was very much a jazz horn section. Yeah. And then the kind of the funk got harder and harder. And then they started having very, very big hits in the early 80s, which is what you're talking about, Barney, I guess. Yes. Well, ladies' night. And exactly. I, I, did, I have to say, they slightly, they slightly uh, rather like the Communist Party leaving Robert Wyatt, <laughs> they slightly left me with ladies' night. I mean, that was, that was produced by <laughs> Diodato. He kind of linked up with them for a bunch of those, right. a bunch of those things. Yeah. So, so it's, I mean, I think Mark's right, though. There is a kind of line that goes through there, like via kind of Jungle Boogie, that was also a big hit earlier on. But there are some really great, those like early 70s records are just 
fantastic, fantastic yeah. sound and just really alive, yeah. I think, is, well, the, they is were, the way Well, they were to... a real band. I mean, yeah. in, in the sort of sense, let's say, white rock bands are bands in a way which is, was quite, is quite rare in American, black American music. You know, they had this, basically the same personnel for a long time. You know, they were a real working band whose job it was to go on a stand and rock the house, you know, and they, they, they were just sensational, I think. Even through to stuff like Open Sesame, which is, I mean, they had a real sense of humour. It's a hilarious record with, like, the Snake Charmer theme sort of in it, and they've got all this sort of mythological mid-70s, like, slightly kind of Earth, Wind and Fire-ish kind of pyramids and sort of that kind of Did they have pyramids? I didn't know about the pyramids. No, they didn't. They, well, Earth, Wind and Fire had pyramids. Oh, sorry, I thought uh, you were cool saying... the gang that, that, okay. had, had like the Taj Mahal oh, okay. for Open Sesame. <laughs> it's like, it, you know, it's very funny. And, and again, the playing is just great. Great bass lines, great drumming, just super, super funky and just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, oh, I, so I you know, it's a major, it's major figure in the story of, of, of American funk. Those are two of the figures we're saying goodbye to this week. And I think this must be the moment, Mark, where we where we hear from you about the highlights among pieces you've added to the library this week. Absolutely. Uh, starting off with Hugh Nolan interviewing Jimi Hendrix in fairly early 1967, Disc and Music Echo. And Jimi says, I'd like to play a note and have it come out of colour. In fact, I've got an electrician working on a machine to do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think he got pretty close. You know. sure. um, now, this is some, partly a question to you, Barney. This is Jerry Nolan, Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers. He had been, he'd left the band but was back with them for a tour of England in 77. Barry Kane, who's a news writer who just got on board for Record Mirror, is on the road with them. And Jerry says, there's one guy in this band I don't like. I've discovered he's a coward and I can't work with cowards. Who do you think he was talking about, Barney? Well, probably not Johnny Thunders. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I can't even remember. And Billy Rath was another of them, wasn't he? So I, I'm just not sure who that uh, could Walter have been. Walter Lear, of course. Or possibly Walter Lear. Well, Walter Lear, as we, as we learned last week, became an investment banker. So <laughs> perhaps he's too cowardly to be a, a punk rocker. I spent a night in a basement in Pimlico with Jerry Nolan, Pat Paladin and Judy Nyland from Snatch, where basically... They'd hand you a pill every 10 minutes. One would take you up and the next one would take you down sort of thing. And Jerry was nodding out on the smack. And we met Pat Paladin many, many years later. And she remembered every detail of that evening, except for my presence. She had no memory of me whatsoever. Oh. Oh, which that made me roar with laughter. By the way, I should say, Stuart, do jump in if you feel so inclined. Anything kind of triggers a thought in you. Right. Lisa Jane Persky profiling Rodney Bingenheimer the mayor of the Sunset Strip for LA Weekly in 79. Now, she says the one thing she says, which is kind of fairly dubious, because I'm not sure he'd get away with it these days. He has a particular penchant for very young ladies, and the largest looming rumour about him is that he tends towards 13-year-olds. Oh, no. Uh, you know. Well, this isn't really news, is it? Um, Bingenheimer was, was sort of... I mean, look, LA in the 70s, 
Yeah, was I mean, exactly. just Babylonia, you know, really. Well, his, his his English disco was where the Led Zeppelin would pick up all their 13, 14-year-old groupers, for example. Yeah. Rodney himself says, I'm only somewhat appreciated. There are people playing the forum because of me. There are people driving Rolls Royces because of me. When we met him in L.A., he had the limpest handshake of just about anyone I've ever met in my life. It was the dead fish to end all dead fish. He's a strange, strange little fella, actually. Kind of quite shy, geeky kind of fanboy. But his radio show was tremendously influential. Rodney on the Rock, some truth in what he says. You know, he broke a lot of bands, especially on the West Coast. Sounds 1981, Betty Page hangs out in the studio with Spandau Ballet. And Gary Kemp says, Talking heads could be great if they got rid of Eno. He puts far too much on top on and makes them sound tinny. <laughs> right, you, right you are, but, Gary. I mean, come on, remaining light could hardly be described as tinny, could you? <laughs> Quite. I mean, it's, it's oozing bass registers. And, yeah. It's a great piece. This is a band who really do rather like themselves, and they make it very apparent. <laughs> <laughs> Eighty-three record mirror again. Paul Sexton on the phone to Lewis Johnson of the Brothers Johnson. Now this this interview must have taken place a couple of weeks after release of Thriller. And Lewis says Michael Jackson had it off the wall, and now he's trying to follow it. It's really impossible. The best thing he could do is a Gracious Hits album. Well, you know, as I said, two weeks after the release of Thriller, I think he was kind of a bit <laughs> wide of the mark. Yes, <laughs> only the biggest selling album of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And actually, that was at the point where Brothers Johnson's career was starting to nosedive because they'd sort of lost the, hard, the harder funk of their, their earlier stuff, which, which was, was terrific. And they, they basically, by the, in fact, the ironist, they must have played on quite a lot of Thriller because they were Quincy Jones's go to section, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. yeah. Nineteen ninety one, Guardian, Sean O'Hagan interviewing Sinead O'Connor. It's very sad. She struggles with herself, always has. She, at one point she says, I went insane, basically. Couldn't function, couldn't even get out of bed to answer the phone. My nervous system was throbbing, literally throbbing. Well, it is a sad story. I mean, is this before or after she tore up the photo of the Pope on, on stage? I'm not and... sure. I, I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure. But it is um, a sad story. I mean, you know, an extraordinary, talented person, I think, Sinead, and, but just absolutely bedeviled by mental health issues to this day. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Are you a fan at all of Sinead, Stuart? You, uh, um, probably not. not. No, not really. <laughs> she didn't do any peel no, sessions. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I like that version she does of that Bobby Gentry song. Because, um, oh, I thought the, you were going to say Prince song. Billy but... Joe, um, you know. That whole Billy, to Billy Joe. Joe. Yeah, yeah, it's great, okay. that is. Yeah. I don't think I've heard Good that. Good wobble on it. That's really good. Oh. Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. She's troubled, unlike RuPaul, who's interviewed by David Keeps for Details in 93. 
We forget that RuPaul did have a recording career, which is why he's in Rock's back pages. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even know that. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. He's great. She said, you know, she says, you're given the gift of life. Why not fucking enjoy it? Prance. Put on a pair of heels. All you need is a pair of high heels and a dream. It's <laughs> 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 advice that we've taken to our hearts, isn't it? We absolutely have in the Rock's back pages office on a regular well, what basis. What do you think RuPaul would think of your trousers that are hanging up there at the back? <laughs> On the over a door. <laughs> do, you? do you think they? Do you think they pass muster? With, um, no, I've seen him. No, pr- I think Mark has a pair of leather trousers. I think somewhere lying around. I they do might a pair of plastic pass trousers. trousers. They're, his, they, they're, they're his special, special prancing trousers. No, I'm not sure I'd get in. They fit anymore, but um, that does make you know, prancing rather difficult. This is just great. Just hopefully, there'll be kids who look at me and go, "Shit! If that bitch can do it, I can do it." And he says, when I saw Clinton's victory speech and I saw him in an Al Gore hug, I realised, whispers, they're lovers. It's a white house of love. The <laughs> 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 last thing I got, this is just great. I, I feel very secure in my insecurity and I've made a home for myself in my disenfranchised state. I'm quite at home in it, which is actually kind of really kind of very cool and interesting yeah, well, he's say. fabulous. He's definitely fabulous. He always gives great interviews. Yeah. You know, he's just one of these guys who just winds him up and sort of off he goes and... Last thing is, Vernon Gibbs, really great writer of ours, wrote the sleeve notes to a massive Philadelphia soul reissue in 97. And he interviewed, basically his, his sleeve notes were about the bands, about the, the musicians, MFSB, the studio guys. And Bunny Sigler talked to him. Bunny Sigler said, a lot of times we'd be cutting a rhythm track and we could tell if it was happening just from the way it felt as we were cutting it. If the musicians started looking at each other and throwing little licks and ideas that wasn't in the arrangement, then we'd know it was right because you can't write that stuff in advance. You have to feel it at the moment. Uh, it's, 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 it's a very, it's really nice piece, which is kind of insight into the, one of the great studio bands in recorded music history. Sure, sure. Great. That's my lot. Lovely, lovely. Thanks, nice. Mark. Jasper, take it away. So we've sort of alluded, Stuart, to your kind of wirish musical tastes across this episode. <laughs> so I went looking for a couple of wire pieces just for you this week. One of which is our first piece on KG Haino. Oh, right. From Biba Kopf goes to see him in, at the Tokyo Showboat in Japan, of course, yeah. in 2002 and writes about it for The Wire. And it's, and it's sort of all night concert. And it's a really great piece where Biba Kopf kind of goes to this rather unlikely venue in the middle of the night. And, and Tokyo is a really interesting city in that it really does shut down after about 1am, other than the all-night drinking institutions. There's, there's no public transport. You can't get anywhere. So it's sort of like, almost like a curfew, because you can't really go out and, and then get home again unless you're willing to stay out all night and then get you know the morning tube home with all the commuters. But so he goes to this sort of basement place and sees this five, six-hour gig it's a really interesting piece and some great writing. Watching him painstakingly whip up voodoo storms of percussion from various seemingly ill-fitting and sometimes awkwardly syncopated patterns, you begin to understand why he decided not to replace Fushitsusha's departed drummer. Constantly shifting the musical ground he's walking on, Heino rends the night with wild reed shrieks, piercing whistles, belching conch-like noise string drones. It's it's it you know that's a that's a really really great description of of Keiji Heino. I, I, I I'd always try and go and see uh, Keji Haino when he's playing, and I think I've seen him with something that was at least cool for Shitsusha, but it had Charles Hayward from This This Heat drumming. But I sort of mm-hmm. I sort of dread it as well because I know it's going to be so it's so emotionally exhausting. It, it's a bit one of my favourite filmmakers is Andrew Cotting, but I I always 
put the films off until I know I'm going to be able to recover afterwards. So that, and, and Rhino's like that. He's one of these people I've got loads of his records, but I would be lying if I said I listen to them every day. <laughs> I certainly don't. <laughs> the children wouldn't have them on in the car, for example. <laughs> but it, I, he's, sort of, he's one of these people that feels absolutely necessary. You know, you feel sort of purged after it and sort of, <laughs> and, it, and it gives you a point to measure all other sounds against. You know, when you think, oh, the end of that, the, the half minute fade out of that Sonic Youth song was a bit exciting. <laughs> you kind of see he'll, he'll take that bit and do it for two hours, you know. But <laughs> a hard, hard thing to describe, though, as well. And then Bibakov did. I, mem- I remember that piece, and he did a really good job of it. But also, there's the thing of the the adventure of finding the show in that is is a, a good element mm-hmm. of that piece as well. What you were saying about it being tiring is spoken to by this piece as well. Towards the end, Heino sends up a shimmering squadron of glow warm notes from a shouldered harp. People are no longer sure whether it's him or them who's died and gone to heaven. <laughs> it's not, it's not a, all just a, like that. I mean, great. he made these. He made some great records with Derek Bailey, where he's just sort of making sounds, really, with his not really singing or talking. You're just making sort of little shrieks and whoops and things that Derek then sort of plays around. I, t- I talked to Derek Bailey about working with Keji Hino because I, I really wanted to know what Keji Hino was like, and it appears he just sort of turned up, never took his sunglasses off. At wherever they were recording, I think it was Moat Studios, probably in South London, made his squeaky noises and then left. And uh, Derek was none the wiser. And typically, of Derek Bailey's <laughs> sort of sense of humour and approach to the world, he didn't seem especially interested to know any more about him either. It's, he just <laughs> sort of took the it, joys took of it, out there music. He just sort of took it as, uh, yeah, he'd come in, you know, and uh, he'd, he'd shut down and uh, then he went off at the end. <laughs> 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 That's great. That's great. What else have you got for Stuart? Well, I've got another piece from The Wire, which is Laurie Anderson's Invisible Jukebox, which is obviously when The Wire plays a bunch of records for someone. And Laurie Anderson is just a great character and a great interview. She's she's just very funny about stuff and very interesting. And unlike a lot of people that go on the Invisible Jukebox who are trying really hard to figure out what they're being played, if Laurie Anderson doesn't know something, she's like, "What? I don't know this. <laughs> what? What is this? It's great. It's sort of unselfconscious in that way, which is quite nice." There's a great bit which is talking about Nam June Paik and being in all the school books and having learned about him at school. She goes, "It was funny at that time, 70s and 80s. You'd do something, you'd immediately be in textbooks. So suddenly your friend's kid is going, "We studied you in school." I'd go, "What? Ugh! How awful! I don't feel dead." Yeah, quite. <laughs> yeah, that's is great, and it's just aging you know, right there. The music that Mike Barnes plays her is is interesting, and I just think she's such an interesting character. Having that hit with with O Superman, yeah. with a you know eight minute sort of vocoder solo yeah. that was somehow sort of, radio. Those great hit. moments you get in 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 the culture sometimes when something sort of escapes into it. Around seventy nine, eighty, eighty one, quite a few things mm. escaped. It was a really an amazing time. You got most extraordinary things being hit records, unimaginable now. You know, absolutely unimaginable now. But it was great. And I was working as a porter in technical stores at the BBC at Broadcasting House at the time. And when it first came on the radio, the radio in our room plumbed in. And we all just kind of like gawped at the radio. What the fuck is yeah. this we're listening to? And it gets I've just been reminded of something, which is I'm not sure why I thought of it. But when I used to script edit Harry Hill's Channel 4 show in the 90s, it was directed by a bloke called Robin Nash. He had been the head of light entertainment at the BBC in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. And I remember the name. Produced and directed Top of the Pops. 
And Robin had very fixed ideas about comedy, and he would never let us do a sketch that was longer than three minutes, which I found difficult. But that would be a bit of a challenge. <laughs> but he said that um, people's, you know, no, no piece of light entertainment could be longer than three minutes. And I went, right, you were director and producer of Top of the Pops, weren't you, when Queen did Bohemian Rhapsody? And he said, yeah. And I went, well, that's longer than three minutes, so what did you do with that? You must have played that through. And he went, no, I didn't. I said, what? And he said, when it was number one the first week, I told them they could sing the, play the first half of it. And if it was number one again the second week, they would show the second half. And that's what he did. He broke it down into two bits. We think, we think, don't we? We look back and they think, that is an... I said I don't like Queen earlier, but everyone's got to admire that record. I mean, they got this strange yeah, yeah. prog rock operetta thing to the top of the charts. And you, you tend to think, well, that was one of the moments where something escaped into the culture. But Robin Nash was there <laughs> holding the fort. It was not going to pass. No matter how many people said it was their favourite thing of all time, it had to be chopped up. Uh, yeah, oh, that's great. That is wonderful. <laughs> easy come, easy go. Will you let me go? Bismillah. No, we will not let you go. Let him go. Bismillah. We will not let you go. Let him go. Bismillah. We will not let you go. Let me go. Let me go. I'll leave it there. I think we're sort of okay. we're at we're at You're watching our, the clock, aren't you? I am co-presenter producer man is watching <laughs> the clock. Oh no. Well listen, um, it's Jim, it's been a great, great pleasure having you on um the the show. Well thanks for having us. I mean it's it's really it was really nice to talk to you and it's also it's also really great to go through the material that you were looking at and to be reminded of the days when music journalism in weekly inkies that were aimed at teenagers was the kind of long-form writing that you only find in the London Review of Books now. And those, um, <laughs> those Caitlin Moran pieces, you know, they're so, they're so vivid, the, set, the setups, the description of landing in the States on the plane and everything. It was, a, it was great to go over, over all that oh, stuff. Oh, good. Oh, good. That's wonderful. Well, so a final shout-out for King Rocker, the wonderful film about former prefect and still current Nightingale, Mr. Robert Lloyd. It's just one of the best music films I've, I've ever seen, I have to say. So catch that where, when and where you can. Watching the trailer for it, I was struck. There's a bit where in the trailer you talk about how things have got kind of shallow and inessential, while behind you on a billboard there's an ad for Comedy Central. Like, was that on purpose? Yeah, you know what? It was... Uh, right, I've been accused of doing that on two particular people in that advert. And I've, um, I've been accused of having set it up deliberately, and I didn't, because that, that would mean I would have to have had access to the uh, electronic billboards of Birmingham New Street Station, which I didn't. But it was nice. a, there's, there's a lot of funny little things in that film. There's a kid that falls over in the background as well. <laughs> in that scene at exactly the right moment. It appears to be a perfect, and his mum pulls him up. And you, you notice all these great. things, they're all, great. they're all coincidences. I'm not some kind of god. <laughs> that's, that's exactly, that's exactly what some kind of god who controls things would say. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point, Jasper. I hadn't thought of that. But thanks so much for joining us, yeah. Stuart. Thank you We will much. be back in two weeks, hopefully with Jude Rogers joining oh, us. We are going to go out, are we not, Mark, with a third and final clip from the Robert Wyatt audio. In which he talks about Peter Tong. Peter Tong, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so can I just flag up before you play that, if anyone's going to have a laugh, there's a really good fall track from 2000 called Dr Buck's Letter, which is Marquis e. Smith reading out an interview 
with Peter Tong, where he's asked what things he might needs to keep in his bag, and it's um, <laughs> it's a really in, inexplicably. Oh, we'll have to thing. smuggle that into the episode. That's Excellent. brilliant. Checklist: I never leave home without one sunglasses. I wear them all year around and seem to need them more often. I do listen to Peter Tong of a Thursday night on Radio One. This uh, hip-hop rap yeah. thing for about an hour. But unfortunately, I can't sit back with the radio because they, they keep on injecting more and more of these nasty little news bulletins, which is like, uh, which I really hate on BBC. I can't see the point of them at all. It's hysterical little bursts about something in Bonn or something or wherever it might be. I just think, look, wait a minute, look, in, in your in Newsnight, they don't tell me a little burst of John Coltrane. Why do I have to have a little burst of, yeah. you, know, you know, kick politics out of music, that's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's such a wonderful irony, isn't it? Of all yeah, of people. of all the people to say keep politics out of music, it sums up just what a delightful man he is. Yeah, that's, is, I, lo- I love that. That was just such a funny clip. P- I would like Peter a burst Tom. of John Coltrane in the middle of Newsnight. It'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's wrap it up there, folks. Bye. 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 Bye Thanks listeners. again. Bye. Hello, good evening. You previously heard Robert Wyatt in conversation with Andy Gill in 1991, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Stuart Lee. Find out more about King Rocker at kingrockerfilm.com. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. (laughs) 